Father, we want to come to you today. and We come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we recognize that we can only come through him. And it's not just reciting his name as a magic formula. It's because of what that name is. That name that is exalted above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We do look forward to that day. But we confess Jesus as Lord today and we come before you because of what he has done for us through his sacrificial and sufficient death on the cross, his burial and his glorious <clears throat> resurrection from the dead. And that he reigns supreme, sitting on that throne we just sang about. And we pray, Lord, that your living water, your refreshing would fall upon us today as we look into your word, as we sing your praise as we fellowship together, may we be renewed and rejuvenated and strengthened and blessed today. And I know there are people that are grieving today. It was sad to hear the other day about Brother Red Berry as he uh, went to heaven. And going to heaven wasn't a sad thing, but we pray for his family and uh, we pray that you would bless them and care for them and give them comfort. Uh, I pray, Lord, today... Uh, thinking about uh, Debbie Ford and praying for her and asking you to give her strength and to give her full recovery. We would love to see Russ and Debbie able to come and worship with us again. And we remember them and we pray for them today. We've got other people in our church that recently have lost loved ones. And we want to pray for them because grief is not something that just you go through a certain formula or a certain period of time and then it evaporates. It, it stays with you and it kind of renews itself every once in a while. Give them comfort and blessing. And we pray for people that we have in our fellowship who are sick. And people that even the diagnosis of what they have is frightening. And we pray you would bless them and give them peace. Help us to minister to one another, to love one another. And to do it um, in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think about that song. Never once did we ever walk alone. And it mentions in there that we look at the battles that we faced. And we didn't win those battles. That was your victory flowing through us. Help us to always remember that you are living through us in every situation that we face. You are always sufficient <coughs> in your power. And we thank you for that, Lord. We are never ever deficient in anything because we have you and you are our everything help us to realize that help us to lean upon that help us to stand upon that lord when we are faced with so many things that are bewildering to us but they're not to you and we pray we would walk in grace and walk in strength help us to love you and help us to love one another and we pray lord that we would love each other more and love you more and we pray that you would bless our church and thank you for the privilege that we have of being together this morning. Thank you for what we learned in Sunday school this morning. We thank you, Father, that uh, you work in our church in so many different ways through people that we are able to help, through our individual witnessing, through other ministries we have. I pray, Lord, for our Hispanic ministry that you would bless that and help them to reach and to disciple people in ways that uh, we 
couldn't because we don't speak the language. And help us all to be just one church working together for the glory of God to reach all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, all different races, and uh, all different languages if possible. And give us the tools to reach them and to bless them so that you will be glorified and honored in this church in a greater way. Now speak to us through your word. And we're reminded that we're not the only church gathered right now. So we pray for sister churches all across the nation and around the world. May you speak to them. May you bring a spiritual awakening and revival and renewal to us and to our land. We pray and remember the persecuted church. Bless those who are in prison for the gospel and help them and strengthen them. And Lord, speak to our hearts today through your word. And this we pray for the glory of Jesus Christ and in his name, amen. Man, if you'll open your Bibles this morning, we did a uh, introduction last week to the uh, book of John, the Gospel of John, and talked a little bit about him so we know some of the background and the purpose and the setting of what's going on. But today we want to, uh, we've entitled this Introducing Jesus, because what John is doing is writing this particular letter, this gospel. <clears throat> so that the world may know who Jesus is. I don't suppose you've noticed, but there are all kinds of ideas about Jesus. There are all kinds of people that have pictures of what Jesus looks like that probably aren't true. So many of what we look at pictures of Jesus, he kind of looks um, you know, more European than he does Middle Eastern. And uh, that's because those pictures were conjured up and painted in the Middle Ages and uh, not a true representative of Christ. And um, we uh, don't really get that. And it's not necessary. That's why the Bible says that we're not to make any graven images of God. Because we don't know what he looks like. We don't know anything about him. We're just supposed to worship him as he is revealed in the scripture. Not in our minds. Not in somebody else's artistic expression. But in our minds are in the word of God and the mind has to be renewed so that we get this and there are all kinds of ideas about Jesus there are all kinds of thoughts about Jesus and people will worship just about any kind of Jesus you go to some churches and Jesus is still on the cross and all over the building you'll find Jesus nailed to a cross when the Bible says the cross is empty and he was buried put in a tomb and good news the tomb is empty as well, isn't it? And he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. You have other people that have the idea that Jesus is just a kind and gentle, lovey-dovey person. And uh, they can't comprehend a Jesus who does battle with the forces of hell and says, It is finished and wins the battle. They don't have a God who is a warrior and a victorious warrior as we sang about. There are some people that have the idea about Jesus that he is just weak and passive and non-aggressive and a kind of a non-violent, just throwing love out all over the place. And uh, they skip the parts in the Bible where it talks about him being preeminent, where it talks about him being glorious and powerful, where it talks about him being the judge of all things. And uh, some people say, well, you don't have any right to judge me. I'll just leave that in the hands of God. They don't realize what they're saying. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. 
And the Bible says that all judgment has been committed to the Son. That's Jesus Christ. He's the one that you will stand before if you're not saved. And uh, He's the one that will pronounce your sentence in hell for eternity. It's, it's Jesus. And He is just different than most people think. And most people are content to serve a Jesus of their own imagination instead of the Jesus of the Bible. Well, John is concerned about that. Remember, John is living in Ephesus. Ephesus is a place where they worship idols, and they were so committed to their gods and goddesses that when the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus, you remember, a riot broke out. Boy, talk about economic impact. So many people were getting saved, it was cutting into the idol maker's business. And so there was an uproar and a political meeting and all of that, and they're in the streets shouting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. I mean, they were passionate about all of that. That's where the Apostle John is, this apostle of love. But don't forget, he was also called one of the sons of thunder, too. He had a temper, and uh, he's very strong and not just a lovey-dovey type person. He is very loving, but he's also very strong and very passionate about what he believes. Now, I remember as a young believer reading in John chapter 1, and I would go, what in the world is this word business? And somebody would say, well, that's Jesus. Well, why don't they just say Jesus? What, what's going on here? And uh, <clears throat> as we introduce this, why does he talk about the word? In the beginning was the word. Well, if you go back in the original language, it says the same thing, N-R-K, and then it says Hologos. And uh, the, in the beginning, in beginning was the word. And um, what, what, what is, is this some kind of code? Is this some kind of a secret language or something like that? What was John doing? Could he not think of anything else? And so he said, let's just call him the word. Savior has already been used. Messiah has already been used. And so we'll just try this and we'll put this down. And so why did he use the word logos? And uh, he did it for a specific reason. Now, he is trying to bridge the gap between Jews. Of course, he was a Jew. He walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus. He went into the temple. Remember, his family were friends with the high priest, Caiaphas. And uh, so he's very Jewish. <clears throat> but he also has a burden for Greeks, for Gentiles, for pagans. And in Ephesus, where this riot broke out with the Apostle Paul, that's where John is ministering. And he wants them to understand who the true and the living God is. And there was a concept that both the Jews and the Gentiles would understand. And we'll talk about that for just a moment before we read it. When you think about the Jews and you think about John having a burden for the Jews. He didn't just say, oh, it's only Gentiles, forget about the Jews. He was burdened for his own people too. And uh, keep in mind too that the Jews were generally repugnant to the Gentiles and vice versa. They didn't like each other very much. But if they get saved, they're going to be folded together into one body. That's a little bit tricky. And so it's something that only the Lord can do. And he cares about both of them. So he chooses this, this idea of the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now he doesn't name him yet. That doesn't happen until later we find out exactly who this one, the Word is. Now you and I know he's talking about Jesus but uh, none of these other people would have 
really comprehended that uh, quite yet. And so when we look at these two backgrounds, think about what the Jews would think about when they thought about <clears throat> the term the word. And for them, it meant origin, it meant authority, it meant power, all of those kind of things. In fact, um, when we read it, let's go together to our particular text in verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And uh, the Greek language there, it doesn't come across in English. Being with God means he was on an equal level with God, face to face with God. Proston theon, uh, with the Lord. Can you imagine? Even in earthly kings, you didn't go face to face, nose to nose, head to head, toe to toe with the king. You were always on a lower level. And you were either bowing before the king or you were standing on a level where he was exalted above you because you had no right to be equal with the king. You didn't, you remember in the book of Esther, even Queen Esther didn't just walk into the throne room. She had to be either invited or if she came in, the scepter had to be raised uh, because she was inferior to the king. Even in England today with uh, Charles and Camilla, she has to walk three feet behind the king. That's the way these things worked. And yet John says, even in the ancient time, the word was with God. Equality with God is the idea there. And then he goes on to say not only equal, but the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not, my translation says, comprehend. There's a better word there. I'll bring that up in a little bit. But the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, Hebrew speech... Why didn't the New Testament, why wasn't it written in, uh, in Hebrew? Well, the Hebrew language has fewer than uh, 10,000 uh, words. It's, it's not a very um, expansive language. It probably is in modern Hebrew, but in the time John wrote this, very limited. The Greek language has 200,000 words. It's much more precise, much more precise in English. For example, something you all probably know, we say love. I love hot dogs. I love baseball. I love apple pie. I love Chevrolet. I love my wife. I love my children. Same word that we have for all of them. Where the Greek language, remember, has uh, three, and some say even four words to describe specific and different types of love. It's much more precise not to mention that greek was the universal language the language of commerce and business kind of like english is in 21st our 21st century world and so uh, the gospels could spread more and uh, be accurate and also reach more people so uh, what was the deal behind the word what did the hebrews the jews understand with the word and so it points back to origins. Everything starts with a word. If I'm going to communicate love to my wife, it starts with a word. It starts with our language. I love you. And if we are going to do something for somebody, we might look and say, you know what, I think we ought to go help this person who is hungry. It starts with our words and we communicate them. Words, even our thoughts are formed in words, aren't they? 
and so to the Jews, that was the idea. Origin, authority, that kind of thing. Wisdom is included in there. But it also is a term of great power. When a king would speak, that is his word. The word has gone out of my mouth. Do this. Words have power. And so the idea of in the beginning was the word. When a Jew would read that, he would think of where everything started. He would think about that power and he would think about all of the authority that would uh, go with that. And so John is using that word to show them that everything they thought about the word, again, origin, wisdom, authority, and power, that that's actually found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about uh, origin, think about the creation account. Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that's just a general umbrella statement of what they're getting ready to tell us how he did it. It says the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then the next three words, and God what? Said. The word. And God said. Let there be light. What happened? There was light. Yeah, even before he created the sun, moon, and stars, he created light because he himself is the light and he doesn't need any of the uh, other things that we have. So when we uh, think about what the Jews would see there, I think about uh, in the book of Jonah in the uh, chapter 1. And this is common throughout the Old Testament. And it makes this statement. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah saying. And that's when Jonah was commanded to go to Nineveh. Now what gave uh, the power, the right, the authority and the command for Jonah to do that? It was the word of the Lord. The Jews would understand this. Where does our morality come from? The word of God. Where does our command on how to live and how to treat other people come from the word of God? And it's interesting that John uses that term to describe Jesus because all of that describes our Lord. It describes who he is. He's not some weak, namby-pamby person who's saying, uh, will you please help me? Will you please let me into your life? Will you please trust me? Will you please believe me? I don't know what I'm going to do if you won't do anything like that. This is a completely different way that, the, uh, that John presents Christ. And the Hebrews would have grasped that. He's the origin of all things. How many times do we find in the Bible? It tells us that Jesus is the creator and the sustainer in Colossians of all things. He is the one who is the chief of everything. That in all things he might have the preeminence he's not the secondary character that we take pity on and we help him because he's a poor cold beggar out there and we must let him in and we must help him the bible never presents jesus in that particular way now if you are a gentile living in ephesus you don't have any knowledge of that you don't know about any jonah you don't know anything about creation you don't know anything about just one in fact you think there are lots and lots of gods and goddesses and you call upon the one that you think might do you the most good and the one who uh, might act in a certain situation and uh, you don't have any background like the Jews do but what would a person who is Greek think about this term logos the word how would it hit them so for the Greeks there was a man named Heraclitus and he was actually from Ephesus 
He uh, lived before the time of uh, the writing of the New Testament, not a long time before, but a little bit before. And uh, he had this idea. He taught that everything is in a state of flux. Now, on the surface, you would go, well, yeah, that's true. Things change. People change. Times change. Leaders change. Situations change. But that wasn't really what he was talking about. He is famous for making this statement. You ready for this? Now, you have to think. Put your thinking cap on. No one ever steps into a river, the same river, twice. What was he saying? Well, his idea was, if I walk over here, and here is a stream, here's a river, and I put my foot in it, and then I pull my foot out, water is moving by. So when I put my foot in the second time, it's not the same river that it was when I did it the first time because things are moving, things are changing. The content of the water might be a little bit different. There may be more fish in it the second time. There may be more mud or dirt or silt or sand the second time. Maybe my first footstep stirred up more of that kind of stuff. And so my second footstep is going into a different thing. Now, I know that's kind of a, you know, well, technically it's the same river, but Actually, he kind of had a point, didn't he? It's different than it was before. And that's the way that he taught that all of life is. All of life is. Okay, I kind of get that. But at the same time, you know, the grass always seems to get green in about April or May, doesn't it? And the grass always seems to turn brown in July or August. But for sure in, uh, in the fall and in the winter, doesn't it? The trees tend to bud out at a certain time of year and they tend to lose their leaves at another time. In fact, we can also look at the sun, moon, and the stars and we find that while, okay, maybe the sun as it burns some of its energy off is not exactly the same today as it was yesterday, it is essentially the same. And the Earth's orbit around the sun is 360, what is it, five and a quarter days uh, to go around the sun. And uh, how many times have you been around the sun? Think about that. And uh, then we think about the stars and we think about the constellations. We look up and we see the same constellations that King David saw when he was a shepherd boy. And we see the North Star and we see the consistency. So people would say to uh, Heraclitus, uh, well, everything seems to be in a state of flux to some degree. But it's not all just chaos and disorder and random. And uh, this Greek philosopher would say, Ah, that is what we don't know. There is a force that is controlling all of this. And we don't know what to call this force. So we'll just call it the Logos. It's the Word. And it's controlling everything. Now you see what John is doing? John is saying if you're a Jew and you are thinking of the term Word in terms of what we looked at, guess who you're talking about? John says, you're talking about the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to get to know Him. He's not just an obscure figment of your imagination. He is a real personal being that exists, and He does all of this that you find in the Old Testament. That was Jesus. Whenever you find the term, the angel of the Lord, now the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses or Abraham or somebody, that's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's amazing. This is who you are talking about, Jews. And then he could say to the Greeks, all of you in Ephesus who were so enamored by Heraclitus and, and you're thinking about all of these things and you contemplate them so deeply. Why is it that everything doesn't just fall apart? Why isn't it that, uh, why does not everything just be so random that you can't do anything? Why is it that a surgeon can go into your body and go into my body and find essentially the same things and do the same things? So what, what's the deal with all of this? Well, it's the logos, this unknown force that is controlling all of that. And you know what John is saying to them? That person you don't know who created everything, controls everything, rules over everything, holds it all together. His name is Jesus Christ. And so either one of these, whatever he's trying to do, would be able to gain some understanding. We wouldn't because we don't think quite like that, but they would. Jews and Greeks, he was able to kind of bridge the gap here as he was uh, teaching these things because he wanted them to know it. To the Greeks... The Logos meant word, of course, to speak, but it also meant to reason. And it also was the idea of wisdom. All of this comes from a God. Boy, I wish our society could get a clue about things. We walk around on an earth and in a universe where everything is so complete, complex, orderly, and held together, and it's so amazing. And yet we go, huh, nothing made this. And it all came out of random chance. And we don't see the hand of God and the designer, the Logos, in other words. But these people back in John's day, whether they were Jew or whether they were Gentile, they would go, ah, I see where he's going with this. I've got an understanding of that, different perspectives. But they would come to the same conclusion. Now, they may not like it. They may reject it. And they may say, that's hogwash. Or they may believe it, they may accept it, and become believers because he's pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not unlike what Paul did when he was on Mars Hill. You remember that? And uh, he said in Acts chapter 17, verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And John is doing exactly the same thing. Hey, Greeks, there's some things you don't know. I'm going to tell you. By the way, fellow Jews, there are some concepts that you have that are right, but I'm going to show you who that really points to and who this really is. Now, back um, before Paul said that about those altars to the unknown gods, it was said that there were more gods in Athens than there were people because of all of the statues and all of the shrines and everything that was around there. There was a plague that hit Athens uh, before Christ, and people were dying, and so they were thinking, oh, we've got to find which god or goddess has been offended. Now, we don't know who it is, so uh, we will let a flock of sheep loose and wherever the sheep lay down we will sacrifice to whichever god or goddess is closest to that sheep and so here's one that lays down by the shrine to apollo and so they sacrifice that sheep to apollo here's one that lays down uh, close to a shrine to zeus and so they sacrifice that sheep to zeus but they had a problem because some of the sheep would lay down in just an open area where there wasn't anything 
And so you know what they did? They sacrificed that sheep and put up an altar that said to the unknown God. Because somebody has got to be ticked off. And somebody's got to be appeased. And so Paul saw that and it grieved his heart. There's no reason for there to be an unknown God. All the other ones are false. But there is a true and a living God. And he said, and I'm going to proclaim him to you. Well, that would get their attention. Everybody that was listening to him when he was preaching on Mars Hill would say, hey, I'd kind of like to know who that unknown God is. And so that's why they said, let him speak. He may have something new to say to us. And so uh, this is what Paul was using, their ignorance, in order to proclaim the gospel and proclaim Christ. This is what John is doing. Taking something that both the Jews and the Greeks would say, oh, I get what he's talking about here, and then show how Jesus is the fulfillment to all of that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That, that's just an amazing passage of Scripture and, a, and an amazing thought. Now, when we look at this, let's look at the Scripture that we are covering today. At number one, John presents Jesus... As the, and this is an important word here, the eternal logos, the eternal word. Not a word that didn't exist until somebody spoke it. It's not that Jesus was created. When it says he was here in the beginning with God, it meant that he was right there at the time of creation of the world and of people and of the universe. He was already there. He didn't come along later, he wasn't an afterthought. He is an eternal being. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And so John presents Jesus as the eternal Word. Everything else. There was a time when there was not a single statue of Zeus. And then there was a time when there was at least one. And then there was two. Then there was three. And then there was four. And then it began to expand. And John is saying to them, this unknown God, this Logos that you look at and that you worship, he has always been with God. And to the Jews, this one that you look at and maybe you have some degree of admiration. Not everybody in Israel hated or rejected Jesus. There were some people who followed him. Maybe it was just because he worked miracles. Maybe it was just because he raised the dead. But they would all say, yeah, there's something about that guy. And uh, he teaches like nobody else. He has authority like nobody else. And when he stilled the winds and the waves, they said, what manner of man is this that he could calm the sea? Now, go back to um, Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah? And Jonah, the word of the Lord comes to him and says, go to Nineveh and preach there because I'm going to destroy the city in 40 days if they don't repent. And uh, Jonah says, no, nah, I don't think so. And he heads to Tarshish, the exact opposite. And uh, while he's on the boat, on the way there, the Bible says the Lord, uh, some translations say he threw down a great wind is the idea. He targeted Jonah. And remember, it was such a big wind and a problem that the sailors, who were all pagans, they were all polytheists, they worshipped idols, they worshipped false gods, they began to cry in panic to their gods. They're throwing cargo overboard and um, trying to make the ship lighter. And you remember that uh, they kind of looked around and they said, is there anybody else? Because somebody probably has offended a particular god or goddess and we've got to find out <clears throat> who it was and which god or goddess has been offended and jonah is asleep 
down in the boat, remember? And the captain comes to him and says, wake up and pray if you think your God cares for us. And uh, they cast lots to see who the problem was, and it came down to Jonah. And they wanted to know who he was, where he was from, and uh, with that was the God that he served. Because all of those people believed there were just many, many gods and goddesses, and they were tied down to different races and different individuals, different types of people. There were gods that were favorable to sailors. There were gods that were favorable to farmers, things like that. And then there were gods that were favorable to people of a certain race or a certain color or a certain region, and uh, they may be hostile to others. And this idea, we've got to find the right one. And Jonah says, I serve, I'm a Hebrew, and I serve the true and the living God, and I'm a prophet of this God. And if you'll throw me overboard, then uh, everything will be okay. Well, they were reluctant to do that, of course. They didn't want to be murderers. But they finally did it, and the sea was calm. That must have made quite an impression upon them as they saw that happening. And the same thing was true with Jesus. Whenever he calmed the winds and the waves, what kind of man is this that he speaks and nature obeys him? The pagans had no answer to that. And even the Jews couldn't understand it. He must be from God. And so when we think about that, people were trying to figure out, who is this Jesus? Why did he make such an impact? What was he doing? And so John presents this in a way where both of them will understand. But he's not a creation of God. He is the second person of the Godhead. He has always existed. He's not something that human beings came up with. We need another God. We need a different way to approach God. Hey, I know, instead of going to a temple and offering lambs, let's make up another person and we'll just go through him. Not like that at all. Jesus said, in the beginning was this word. And the word was with God and the word was was God. Now Jehovah's Witnesses like to take that verse and they like to add a word to it. Now remember we said in Sunday school that if you add or abandon the word of God or the gospel you negate it. And they negate it by adding to it. They say in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. How does that change it? Just makes Jesus one of you know many no big deal uh, that kind of thing. But John presents him as being there co-equal in his nature and attributes with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. So John presents Jesus as the eternal word. Is that how you seeing? In the beginning was the word. Secondly, John presents this word as personal and equal with God. Now both of those things are important because some people, especially in John's day, they would kind of say, yeah, we'll give you that Jesus may be, you know, kind of God-like in there, but he's certainly not flesh and blood, flesh and bone. He didn't become a material person. He just always was a phantom. And the Gnostic teaching was that anything material, like that, sinful. Anything that is non-material, and this goes back to that Logos. See, I can speak and I can say, Logos! And there's nothing that came out of... Well, I hope nothing came out of my mouth at that particular time except sound. And they would say, oh, that's God. That's holy. That's spiritual. And the more um, material it became 
the more evil it was. And they saw the body, flesh and blood, because you could touch it and feel it. It was evil. You can't restrain it. Do whatever you want to do. But the spirit is what is good. And so a rock was really evil because it didn't have any spirit or anything. It was nothing but a material being. Humans were kind of half good and half bad because we do have a soul and personality and speech as well as this flesh and blood. And angels, oh boy, they're really, really cool because they don't actually have material bodies. They're just spirits. And so they're closer to God. And what they would teach is through reincarnation and all of these kind of things, we were making our way back up to God, to being like God. And so you can see the roots of the New Age movement of Buddhism and Hinduism and all of that in this Greek thought. And so the idea that John wants to get across to them is Jesus is not an impersonal force, this logos that keeps everything from falling apart. He is a real person, he's an individual, and he is a personal God, someone you can know. Someone you can bow before. Can you imagine the fact that one of these days, if you're a believer, you're going to be in the very presence of God and you'll be able, like Thomas, to see the nail prints in his hands and his feet and you will be there in front of a living, personal God, the man, Christ Jesus. He's a human. He'll be like, we'll be like him when we are there with him and see this was all foreign to the Greeks you can't really know any of these and the gods and goddesses they did know well they weren't really worth knowing they played tricks on each other they went to war against each other they were immoral they would lie they would do all kinds of treachery to mankind and John is presenting someone completely different more than an impersonal force a real person that you can know and that is the Lord Jesus Christ but of course he hadn't said that yet this is John who is presenting this word as a personal uh, person and someone who is actually equal with God the word was with God and the word was God let that settle it the deity of Jesus Christ and he was in the beginning with God because he had no beginning in and of himself. Therefore, he was already there when it was time to create the universe. And number three, John here presents the word as the creator, the owner, and the ruler over all things and all people. In other words, this isn't just a God that is important if you're a Jew, but if you're not a Jew, don't worry about it. Or if you're a Greek, it's important, but if you're not a Greek, don't worry about it. They believed not only in many gods, but the gods were gods of certain, as we said earlier, occupations or races or more importantly, regions and areas. And uh, who are you? Uh, well, I'm so-and-so. Who do you worship? I worship the God of the Ephesians. Well, I'm, the, uh, I'm from Oklahoma, and I worship the God of the Oklahomans is kind of the way they would see it. Just different gods, and it didn't matter just as long as you worship the one that was in your particular region. Well, John presents Jesus as someone completely different. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And the idea of being a maker of something implies ownership. If you make something, you're in your shop, in your garage or whatever, and you make a, a piece of furniture, that is your piece of furniture. You made it and you own it. John is saying this is a personal, eternal, all-powerful God who made us and everything in it. Now, he has the right to define the scope of our lives. He has the ability 
to tell us what to do and what not to do. He has the ability to bring consequences in our lives if we disobey Him. And all judgment is given to Him. Why? Because He owns us. He has made us. Like it says in Psalm 100, we are His children, the sheep of His pasture. He has made us and not we ourselves. Very important thing all through the Scripture. So this would be kind of foreign to the Greeks, but very important for them to know. This would be something kind of foreign. They had, the Jews had never attached this to Jesus Christ for obvious reasons, but John is saying this is something you need to know. And then number four, John presents the Word as supreme. And it says, in him was life. Well, who else can give life? There's nothing else that can give life. You can't jumpstart yourself. You know, sometimes if my battery's dead, I can get a, a vehicle that we have with a battery that's not dead, and I can jump it, and the life in one battery will go to another, at least enough to get the car started. Well, you can't do that with anyone else. If you're at the hospital or hospice or something, and someone you love dies, you can lay all over them, you can blow into their mouths, but they're not going to come alive because you cannot create life. Science cannot create life. Only God can create life. Life and also light, the idea there being wisdom and enlightenment, knowing some things, knowledge. How much more do you know today as a Christian than you knew before you got saved? And how many of you that before you got saved, the Bible was just, you know, a bunch of fairy tales and made no sense at all? And look at you now. And you remember when you first got saved, you weren't sure how to pronounce P S A L M S, palms? splasms something like that and job you called it job remember all those names that were so strange nicodemus nebuchadnezzar and now they just come out of your mouth just so easy because you know the word why you've been enlightened the holy spirit has shined light in the darkness and what you once stumbled over now you see around i was in our backyard the other night and uh they had said that uh, possibility of rain, another storm coming in. And I go, oh, man, I moved the trampoline before I mowed and I forgot to stake it down. Well, ask Jenny and Isaac, if you have a trampoline in your backyard and those winds come through like we've had recently, they can end up at your neighbor's, right? And uh, so I thought, I better go out there and do it. Well, uh, being the dummy that I am, I just went out there and I didn't take a flashlight. And there were a couple of things I tripped over. You know why? Because there wasn't enough light. I don't trip over them in the daytime. I go around them. Light makes all the difference in the world. And the gospel is described as a stumbling block, isn't it? People trip all over it until they are enlightened. And when the light shines, then they see it. Then they get it. And then they embrace it. And then they love it. And where does that light come from? Well, it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, as the Bible says, the light of the world. In him was life. Where else are you going to get life? Eternal life. Spiritual life. You're only going to get it in Jesus. Church can't give it to you. Rituals can't give it to you. Morality can't give it to you. Uh, all of your knowledge, human knowledge can't give it to you. It's got to come as a result of trusting Christ. And uh, this light and the life, they both go together. The light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not... And I told you my translation, I'm using New King James, says comprehend it. Well, that's true. 
That's true, they don't comprehend it, but that's not the best translation or meaning of the word. Life and light are two of the great basic words on which the fourth gospel is built upon. And uh, the Greek word there would tell us uh, several things. First of all, that darkness is hostile to the light. They're two opposing forces. You can't have both, really. Uh, either going to be light or it's going to be dark. Okay? Uh, even if we were to darken this room right now, uh, it, it would get really, really dark. But I could light a tiny little match and the darkness would not be able to put out that match, would it? Light always overcomes darkness. They're hostile to one another. And also, light and life are mysterious. We don't fully understand them. We don't fully get it. Is darkness a force in itself or is it just merely the absence of light? Have you ever been in one of those caves where they take you on a tour and then they turn out all the lights? Boy, you almost feel like the darkness is a real thing enveloping you. It's, it's uh, uh, just amazing. And yet, uh, here it is. And uh, Jesus is the light that overcomes the darkness. And darkness does not conquer or distinguish the light doesn't conquer or dis extinguish the light so the better way to do it that uh, it says and the light did not or the darkness did not comprehend the better way is say it did not overcome or overtake the light why when Jesus came into the world no matter what people may think and what it might say well he died on a cross it wasn't a big deal he came for a few years and then he died and he went away but we're still talking about him 2,000 years later. Why? Because darkness can never extinguish the light. And it's amazing to think that within, within 30 years of Jesus' death, it uh, had traveled all over the gospel, had traveled all over Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and Greece, and also had arrived in Rome. By A.D. 60... There uh, must have been 100,000 Greeks in the church for every Jew who was a Christian. Can you imagine? Now, maybe the numbers are a little bit off. Okay, maybe it's half that. That still is amazing. How did that happen? Because when John presented the gospel in this way, the Greeks said, finally, I know who the Logos is. It's Jesus, Jesus Christos. And they bowed before him and said, He is Lord. And there were Jews who also, remember the church when it first started, was exclusively Jewish. And they were able to come and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of Israel. And they came to faith in him. And it just began to spread. And it began to explode in all of this. And uh, that's because that's what light does. And so this is what John says. Whenever you look at the Logos, don't think about something temporary. Don't think about something created. Don't think about something that is here today and gone tomorrow. Don't think about something that can be overpowered by the darkness. Think about something that is just like John said, except that person is a someone. And we're going to find out that that person that John is describing here is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So John is saying, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce to you today the champion. Here he is, the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, the eternal, the one that will never be defeated. And there were Jews who said, wow. And there were Greeks who said, wow. 
And they bowed before him and they trusted him. And the gospel spread like wildfire. And they didn't even have Facebook or Instagram. Think about that. It's amazing. Different cultures, different languages, different customs. They didn't even like each other. And yet here it came and it started traveling. And today it is all over the world. The whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus. Like sunshine at noonday, His glory shone in. The light of the world is Jesus. Come to the light, tis shining for thee. Sweetly the light has dawned upon me. Once I was blind, but now I can see. The light of the world is Jesus. And that's our message. And that's why we're not intimidated by the world. And that's why we stand up against the world. And that's why we have so much power in the world. Doesn't always feel like it, but God is always at work. And Jesus, the Word, the most powerful person in the universe, you know Him personally. He died personally for your sins. He has forgiven you, and He will welcome you into His presence one day. And you will be in His presence personally for eternity. What a glorious day that's going to be. So that's how John sets it up. He just hits them right between the eyes. You think you know something? You think you're so smart? You think you've got all this figured out? You don't even know. Let me tell you who he really is. And that's our mission to go out into the world and tell people not what they think about Jesus or what, not what they want to know about Jesus, but the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, do you know him in his truth? Do you know him the way that we uh, looked at it in John's explanation today? That is the Savior. That is the King. That is the Conqueror. That is the Judge. He is the Ruler of all things. And the sooner you understand that and bow before him and repent of your sins and put your trust in him and say, I believe him then the better off you're going to be because He'll save you. He'll send His Spirit to come and dwell you. He'll make you a part of His family. He will be your power. He will be your victory over all those things you hate in your life. He will overcome them. And you won't have to fear death because He will escort you into His presence for eternity. Guaranteed. Because He does not lie and darkness cannot overcome him much less comprehend him isn't that great and it's wonderful to know that trust him today is my exhortation to you and if you are a believer then don't let your trust back off and don't look act like the world has really all the answers and we're just trying to fit the bible into it somewhere the bible spurgeon said doesn't have to be defended it's like a lion he said turn the lion loose it'll defend itself right and so be bold and be confident. The word of God has spoken and Jesus is Lord indeed. Amen. And God bless you. And thank you so much for your time today.